Bucks got all the right steps in Charleston. They now can try their slipper and see if it fits at the big ball. These Tennessee State Buccaneers, they're dancing, boys. Hunter Muscaro, Perea lays it up. 1.4. Perea hits it. The pass is caught. Ready for the game winner. Wide left. Bucks win. Bucks is spotting for three. The place is going to erupt. Oh, Deuce Bellow, he's going to make Sports Center with an incredible Jarvis Jones, the game winner got it. Ball game, East Tennessee State's going to leave on another. They got him. If he catches it, it's over. Ball game. Touchdown, Jawan Stinson. 25 yards. J.J. German for the win. He got it. J.J. German and the Bucks have shocked the Bulldogs. And the sidekick. Who in the blue hell are you? <laughs> You're handsome. You have the perfect amount of scruff. And you still have no talent. It's Sandos in the sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. Except it's not this week. One story in particular made me go that way, and I think it was, again, abbreviated version because we'll go into more depth. Uh, Sando stories from quarantine. That's a little preview of what we'll have next week when you are allowed to leave your guest bedroom and return to work. But you told me that rather than you know electronic devices, television, uh, movies, tablets, anything that would have helped you get through a very difficult time, um, your wife decided to hand you a, a book. And for guys like you and me, and I believe we're relatively similar in this ideology and the experience we've had in life, a book is more like a um, sentence rather than enjoyment. And so it seems like, unfortunately, you have had a little bit more of the imprisonment vibes. Um, But I'm glad you're in good spirits regardless because that's an uphill battle. 
It, uh, it is, and I'm, I've got some, some other good ones, too. I will say I was very confused. I opened the book, and it didn't speak. There was no <laughs> pictures. There's, there's a lot of confusion uh, going on with, with that. But uh, at least Saturday, I, did, I was able to finagle, uh, to sit outside, and, and I may be the only person that, that still loves listening um, to an actual, uh, you know, so listening on your phone, listening to something that actually picks up an FM signal. And so I was able to get an, an old uh, FM radio that I had mounted under my cabinet that uh, take it outside. I actually hung the antenna off a tree. I was able to sit outside the whole night, Saturday night, by myself and enjoy listening to the game. It does sound like truly you are starting to lose it. So I hope that this next five days or so um, goes well, because I can imagine you trying to set that up, and antennas from trees and these devices known as radios that no one has even seen for 10 or 15 years. It's a pretty interesting scene that you're painting, uh, but most importantly, I'm glad you're, you're feeling well. Uh, no one else has gotten COVID um, or has to go through protocols in your house at the moment, it doesn't sound like, which is great. Um, how is it as a broadcaster? Because I know you've had this experience a couple times um, for uh, much worse reasons and sad reasons than what you're experiencing right now. Um, but over the last couple of years, I believe you've made every broadcast, if memory serves. So getting to sit back and listen and occasionally watch, because I know you like to tune me out when we're on the show and also when I'm broadcasting games, uh, how was that to step back into the listening and being a fan rather than having to be you know, on your game and spotting everything and not really intaking it like entertainment, but more like work. Yeah, it, this time it was more like work because um, one given short notice, the other times so we had a little more time to, to get people prepared. David Jackson uh, filled in the Kennesaw State road game and then the Robert Harper filled in the James Madison game. Uh, and those were, you know, kind of an escape. I, yeah, I listen to pregame. Well, what's the game got going? I really got locked in those just as an escape from uh, my wife having to have that emergency surgery and then my mom passing away. And so it's just a different – it was like, hell, escape the game's on. This one was way different because, you know, I had a steady line uh, of texturing going uh, during, the, during the game or pregame or whatever it was, not just with you. Um, guys in the studio, you know, Robert, Matt, Don, Kevin Brown, as we were helping – you know, giving statistical information to people. So it was a lot more work, and I paid a lot more attention and made notes and uh, really just kind of critiquing um, the broadcast and how it's set up and the flow and, and everything like that. So it was very much work. Um, once it got in the game, I got a little bit more relaxed and just turned into a fan, which I don't get to do a lot. And and uh, what I enjoy is because you make fun of me, because I had the actual radio signal, um, live as opposed to an app, I was able to um, kind of w- listen to the broadcast, and then a couple plays later, I could look down at the ESPN3 and then watch sort of the replay or your reaction and your calls to plays I know are already coming. So uh, probably unique in that uh, because most people would just get the app and then they could sync up the radio call with the ESPN3 or just enjoy your ESPN3 call after. I know there are some people that uh, – just listen to pre and post game on the radio, enjoy the game on TV, and then join us back for pre and post. But however you want to engulf it, I enjoyed the way I did. So I got sort of a, a double taste on all the interceptions and all the touchdowns. 
Well, I'm glad you got to at least be a fan during the game because obviously the emotional trauma of the couple of times you have missed a game recently would put you not in a space to be able to enjoy anything. But in this case, really only battling against your own physical health and overcoming as you have. I'm glad you got to do that because, as you said, few and far between. Okay, I, let's just run this right like a regular show now. Sidekick in the Sandos, of course, is the title of it. But I would like to hear your reactions uh, first before we get to mine. Any breakdown there? 45-14, to 14, ETSU over UVA-wise. It was a slow start. You know, those first eight, nine minutes, uh, I think maybe there were some thoughts creeping into some people's minds that were watching about this maybe being much like the Mars Hill game, the limestone game, perhaps a little bit closer, not something where ETSU could sit back, relax, uh, get some guys into the contest that they usually wouldn't be able to. Obviously, things ended up going that direction by putting up 40-plus um, for, I believe it's the sixth time, uh, maybe seventh time since football has been back. But the Bucks did pull away late. Great day for Tyler Rydell, Quay Holmes, uh, Jacob Saylor's Will Huzzy. The list goes on. What did you think of the contest? I thought it, it kind of played out a little bit early the way I thought it would, and even the way Coach Sanders and, and Billy Taylor, if you listen to a bunch of their pregame, you know, you just can't mimic sometimes the speed and pace and stuff. You can try, but you just can't do it. And I think it, it, it just takes a series or two for the defense to fully get locked into what's sort of happening. And I think once they did, then there was a couple of turnovers forced. And then once the defense got going, I felt like that picked up the energy of the offense. Um, I mean, the, uh, stated for a while, I think the best two running backs uh, in the league belong, you know, to ETSU. And I think they proved it yet again. We saw game one, what Quay Holmes able to do. We saw him, I, he had a, you know, a good game, but compared to what Jacob Sailors did, you know, kind of second fiddle and, you know, Sailors picked up the player of the week, I think just got announced a little bit ago. So I think, uh, you know, having those two backs be able to do what they can do certainly helps Tyler Rodell. And I thought the way he managed the game, he made the one bad throw. Um, I think he got away with another one. But out, out, of, out of all the other, like, 21 passes, I think only two of them um, were, were a bit awry. Other than that, I thought he was great. I thought he gave his receivers a chance to make plays. And we've talked about this last week. I've just been impressed with the receivers making plays. I mean, we're just not seeing a lot of drop passes or any drop passes. And, and you know, if the ball's thrown near any of the receivers, I feel like they're going to catch them all. And I can't tell you if since football's been back, I've thought that as soon as every pass has been thrown, there's been a couple guys that have thrown two. I'm thinking, well, they're going to catch it. But, like, overall, every time a ball comes out of a quarterback's hand, you know, I haven't had that confidence that, you know, every ball is going to be caught. I mean, Will Huzzy's just doing Will Huzzy things, making uh, ridiculous catches. But guys are making routine plays. You know, I think Rodell has a great grasp of the offense. The sluggishness early, you could probably, you know, a little bit speed for what UVA Wise was doing, probably coming off a high uh, Vanderbilt just – you know, maybe not respecting your opponent early, or, or maybe, again, UVA-wise is just showing some different stuff. But eventually it turned into what I thought would happen. Defense would make some plays. Offense put some points up. And it got ugly at the end, which I'm sure we can talk about later, just with penalties and everything else. But uh, certainly the game sort of played out um, how I kind of thought it would play out, especially early in the first half. Not only are we not seeing receivers – not drop passes, but as you said, I mean, some of the catches that are being made by Will Huzzy were at three one-handed catches through two games. He used his left and his right on Saturday, uh, one each, to be able to make a couple of tremendous catches. And then, 
You see Malik Murray on the other side goes 3 for 58 in a score after, I believe, against Vanderbilt it was 3 for 52 in a score. Huzzy 6 for 84 in a score. But Malik Murray fighting through a defender to get to the end zone for a second touchdown in as many weeks. So I posed this question to Mark Hutzel on the broadcast, and he kind of – uh, hemmed and hawed back and forth, uh, you obviously being around the program as you are much more than either uh, myself or Mark, I think you'll have a more cogent answer to this. Malik Murray and Will Huzzy, are these the best two receivers that ETSU has had at the same time since football has been back? Of course, Murray, the transfer from uh, Georgia uh, Southern, that's a triple option offense. So you weren't maybe quite sure how things would translate coming to ETSU that are a more you know pro-style balanced offense, right, with Quay Holmes, Jacob Saylor is doing tons of running, and you have to get them the ball. They're your playmakers in a passing game that I think Randy Sanders would like to be at the level of the running game, but just hasn't quite matured at the level of the uh, running game yet. But Murray and Huzzy appear to me, and you think about the names of the past, Drake Powell, Vincent Lowe, uh, Dalton Ponchilla, uh, Kobe Kelly. There's some others that I'm sure you can bring up, but these two seem as good as any, if not better. Yeah, since, since it's been back, uh, certainly right now, just a couple of games in, I mean, they, they would have to be up there. Uh, you know, the thing about Kobe, you know, he really didn't have, you know, Kobe more of a possession guy. The thing about Murray and Huzzy, they can, they can get down the field. You know, Benny Lowe was more of a slot guy where, where Drake Powell could get down the field. I don't know if they've had two guys that you had this much confidence in that can get vertical. They certainly can run other routes and made underneath catches and make plays. But, you know, I don't know that the Bucks have had two vertical threats uh, the way that they've had, which again brings up Wilson to Isaiah Wilson to be a slot guy. It's sort of an unconditional slot considering his size and strength, but he certainly can make plays on the inside. So, I, you know, having two vertical guys like that, no. I think that's what separates them I would say probably, if you look at the numbers, it'd be Drake Pound, Benny Lowe. Uh, the, the, the year that those two guys had, I want to say it was Drake's um, uh, redshirt junior year. He didn't come back for his redshirt senior year. But I think it would have been that season. Um, but those guys had some pretty good years. But, again, you know, they really, I think they only threw one deep ball to Penny Lowe, and that was the, the Furman game on a fourth and ten play where they just kind of had to press it down the field the rest were underneath throws and, and Benny had a nice ability to make people miss and can score but the two vertical threats on the outside like that no this is you know this is almost honestly reminiscent to you go back to the 96 97 team when you look at Anthony Stringfield and BJ Attigan both those guys could could really get down the field and so I think because of that I think right now again two games in they still got a lot more games to go I'll I would say through the first two games, those guys could potentially be the best two uh, wide receiver combination that we have had since it's been back. There's still only one receiver that has gotten more than 500 yards in a season since football's been back. That was Dalton Ponchilla, 509 in 2015. And right now, you've got Huzzy and Murray at uh, 55 yards per game for Murray, 73 per game for Huzzy, both on track to best that. If you do the quick math in your head, 509, you divide that by you know, 11 games, that means that there is right about 47, 48 yards uh, per game through the air for Punchilla. So there isn't a receiver that has averaged and played every game at least 
50 yards per game or more. Both of them are over that right now. And heck, Jacob Sailors with that 64-yard screen pass that went for a touchdown down that left sideline. He's at 44.5 yards per game now. Five catches, 89 yards, and a score. And it was a big day for Jacob. Still far and away the all-time greatest yards per carry man in the history of ETSU football, but it was through the air that he did a lot of his damage early, 150 combined yards, as you mentioned, uh, Southern Conference Offensive Player of the Week. Let's talk about the man that hands him the ball. Tyler Rydell comes up seven yards short of his career high, but 13 for 18, 201 and two scores. Yes, the bad interception late, but other than that, a pretty spotless effort. And if you even want to talk about Brock Landis, he made his return to the field uh, unavailable last week as he was recovering from an injury in camp, but does come back. It was four for eight, 73 yards, um, and a score to Huzzy late. Uh, seems like things would stay pretty uh, much standard at the quarterback position going forward, considering how Tyler has been playing. I think two games that are two of his best as a collegiate, especially considering the competition against Vanderbilt. And with Brock Land is coming back and looking good at times and inaccurate at times through the air. I think also he, to me, and again, I'm trying to go back and watch this this morning just because I knew you know, we were, we were going to have this conversation. He still didn't look quite comfortable yet. And I think, you know, he needs another week or two, my guess, uh, uh, being Brock Landis on that knee and maybe, you know, kind of have that confidence. But there was a couple times, like, I think, you know, he stepped through, and I was like, oh, man, that's great. And there's a couple times he threw, and I was like, ah, I don't know if he's quite there yet. So, I, you know, it was good to see him out there. I'm sure he was happy just to get uh, a couple of live action against you know, non-ETSU defenders. And, you know, well, no, I, with, with Coach Sanders, I don't know. I mean, you know, he, he benches Rodell after a win or not benches. Landis wins the job, however you want to word it. You know, after a win at the Citadel, where Rodell had a, you know, you look at the numbers, a fairly good game. But there were some plays on the field that he left, and there were some plays that could have been touchdowns that were either overshot or underthrown and still completions but didn't go. So, you know, Coach Sanders, I don't know. He he wants those big playability. And right now, what what's happening is Rodell is pushing the ball down the field and catches are being made. So, you know, rather that's Rodell getting the ball out to the right spot, rather it's just he's got receivers making better plays now, whatever it is. But I, I don't see any reason why Rodell wouldn't be your guy moving forward. Now, again, we know Coach is a little finicky and, you know, um, and I like it because it means Rodell can't get too comfortable. He knows he's got to continue to improve every week. But right now, I've been impressed with Tyler Rodell, how he's handled the offense. You know, he's tried to each game. I think he's thrown at least two balls where I, I kind of feel like, you know, he's forced it or made up his mind what he's going to do with it. And I think, you know, those two throws, only once it's kind of cost him, but it was when a game without a hand. I'm just hoping that he kind of gets those couple throws out because that'll certainly secure and solidify his spot as a starting quarterback. I hate to be a downer, but you also know that I kind of love to be a downer when it comes to balancing things out and making sure we're talking about both the good and the bad. And I think that Randy Sanders is the same way when you talk to him and really any football coach. They're never going to be fully and totally happy with their performance. And he did bring up in his Monday press conference the penalties that ETSU had too many, got sloppy, as you mentioned, got sloppy late, and there were some penalties early on as well. It's been a consistent theme for ETSU since football's been back. There hasn't been one season in which the Bucks have finished better than fifth in terms of fewest penalty yards in the league. Now, most of the years, they've been bottom three in the Southern Conference, that in third downs, and 
Third down conversions were a problem on Saturday as well. There hasn't been a year where ETSU has finished better than 40% when it comes to um, converting third downs. And you'll usually see teams that will lead a conference up near you know, 47, 48, 49, 50, sometimes better. So well off, uh, well off where you'd like to be. So with those two things being what they are and them rearing their ugly heads again on Saturday, and obviously we know it didn't affect the outcome. We didn't think it would. It would have taken an unbelievable set of circumstances for UVA-wise to do to ETSU what ETSU did to Vanderbilt. But still, those are glaring issues that the Bucks have worked through to win a Southern Conference championship. They've been in contention for another Southern Conference championship. Of course, 2018, the title, the spring of 2021, they were right there as well. And this year, regardless of, what, seven penalties for 60 yards against Vanderbilt in week one, and uh, you look now, I believe we had, what was it, 12 or 13 um, on Saturday. So, let's see, 19 for 152 now um, on the year. So, 12 penalties on Saturday. Those things aren't going away. And I asked Coach Sanders in this Monday press conference that we just got out of, what do you think the commonality is between those two areas, and why haven't they been able to improve? And he, I'm sure, has his theories, but he just said, you know, if I was able to answer that question, then uh, I'd be writing books on football, uh, which is fair, and maybe you'd even read them while you're in quarantine, Jay Sanders. But um, with all the penalties and the lack of third-down conversions, you know, these are things that we've discussed ad nauseum in the past, but... I feel we have to continue to discuss them and ways to get around them until they're fixed. I mean, you, you know this, but I keep up with sort of the, the how, how yards gain on first down because it, it affects third down. I keep up with all the third down shorts, mediums, longs, the percentage that ETSU is in third and long. And ETSU has been third and long almost dead last, or the most, if you want to, depending on how you want to look at it in the Southern Conference has been back. I mean, it's just been a problem in two different offenses of just getting out of third and long and just how hard it is to convert on third and long. And most of that is because ETSU has been so anemic sometimes on first down. Now, what changed it a little bit last year was they had so many big plays on first down that it looked like, hey, you're averaging five, six yards, you know, a clip on first down. That's great. Well, the problem was that, you know, 19% of the time they were getting a first down on the first play, which which is awesome, right? You're getting more than 10 yards. But 81% of the time, you know, you're you're obviously not. And I think it was 48% of the time you were two yards or less or even negative. And so when you start doing that and you're going, okay, 48% of the time we're going to be, you know, second and 10 or 12 or 8 or something like that, then, you know, you're just behind the chains already. And so then you've got to do more – um, you know, to sort of make that up. So they've still got to be better on first down. And I know, and again, the Bandy, they had some big plays on first down and were able to pick up, you know, a lot of yards, which kind of skewed what they averaged on first down. And I'm, I'm actually outside the yard, so I'm not, not able to look up. But if you go to the game comparison, you know, what ETSU averaged on, on first down, and then if you go back and, and count up each individual play on first down, what happened, it is amazing how just a couple of those big plays on first down you know, will take away and make it look like, oh, you were great on first down. And I think that's been the biggest problem for ETSU is they can't consistently on first down, you know, take the big plays out, average four, five yards on that first down and get to that second and five, and then just have all the plays available for you and all the different things that Coach Sanders wants to do. That's been the biggest thing for me has been really the third down and why. I've just continued to keep up with it. And, and until ETSU gets out of sort of that 
that last place of always being in third and long, then I think I'm going to continue to keep up with it. The penalties, I mean, some of it, you know, uh, you hate to see because some of it's aggression, right? You know, we certainly saw the targeting, the ejection, almost had another targeting call um, that, that, that got changed. But some of it is you have some aggression. But a lot of it is, men on some of those hold calls, I mean, guys were just either beaten or out of position, and that was concerning because you should have had an advantage uh, in this last game, particularly physically on the offensive line and stuff. And maybe you can give credit for Delaware, not Delaware State, yeah, that'll be next week, but for UVA Wise, for, you know, just trying to blitz from everywhere and confuse, and maybe they did, and that's what caused some of those holding penalties. But, um, you know, I think that's, that's a bit disturbing. I thought the bandy, you could kind of live with how those penalties came and went. And, you really just had that one drive where you had two horrific, you know, 15-yarders kind of back-to-back plays. And then, you know, other than that, it was just a here-and-there penalty that just kind of ebb and flow the game you could deal with. But we know those penalties have cost CTSU in the past. Certainly third downs have cost CTSU in the past. But I think those two are just glaring things that the Bucks are clearly going to have to uh, clean up, especially the penalties because it's always way too many penalties. And then offensively, as they continue to get better, kind of hoping they can still get in that third and medium, third and short range, as opposed to always having a third and eight, third and ten. And, you know, and again, he just was able to convert some third and longs in that contest. But when you step up with a Southern Conference play in the heat of the battle, those are just going to become more and more difficult. It would be interesting to see, too, the breakdown of offensive versus defensive penalties, just to see how many times a penalty is setting ETSU back and creating some of those second and third and longs and working from behind the sticks, because those two can kind of work in concert with each other. Unfortunately, in a way, ETSU would not like them to, um, and there may be a connection there if we had a breakdown of offensive versus defensive penalties. And, hey, you've got about five days left of quarantine to be able to look that up. Lucky you. That's right. I, I, will, I will have that for our breakdown at, uh, against Delaware State on Thursday. And we will break that down on Thursday with Jay Sandoz on the phone. I'm going to give you about a 20-minute break because I know that you've got about 10 or 15 minutes of outdoor time left in your one hour per day that you get um, on your quarantine um, routine uh, or imprisonment routine or whatever we're calling it. When you're out in the yard, uh, usually when you're in jail, they call the outside the yard. It sounds like you're experiencing some of the same, but hang out for me, buddy. We'll come back with full predictions recap. But first, Athletic Director Scott Carter and Senior Associate Athletic Director for External Operations, Dr. Matt McGahee. We're going to talk about 9,700 and 20 people in William B. Green Jr. Stadium on Saturday. New record for ETSU's brand-new $30 million stadium. It was a beautiful sight. The hill was full. The seats were full on Heroes Day, the 20th anniversary of 9-11. There were a ton of reasons to be there. Of course, the Bucks coming off of a win over Vanderbilt. Uh, it was uh, quite an awesome scene at William B. Green Jr. Stadium here in Johnson City on Saturday. We'll go over it with the two men that were largely responsible for making it happen outside of, of course, the best fans in the Southern Conference, that being all of those that did file in and those that feel freedom. Hall, Summers Taylor Stadium, every ETSU event uh, across the board. uh, No doubt that the fans are what we make them out to be, and they showed it again on Saturday night. That's when we're back on Sidekick in the Sandos on the Buccaneer Sports Network, brought to you by City. For over 75 years, Bright Ridge has powered our community, providing the energy to live, work, and play. And now we're looking ahead, investing in our community today, and building the infrastructure to power our community tomorrow. 
we're supporting zero-emission electric vehicles, harnessing the sun to provide clean, renewable community energy, and expanding into broadband services for our shared future. Bright Ridge, your community power, here for you. Saturday's game against Delaware State, but in his stead, how about a pretty good couple of subs? I believe, gentlemen, this is your first appearance on Sandos and the Sidekick each. Scott Carter, Athletic Director, and the man with the longest title in the history of the world, Senior Associate Athletic Director for External Operations, and throw a doctor in there too, Dr. Matt McGahey. Um, Some would say that a podcast that has lasted 228 episodes but hasn't had their bosses on yet would have gotten canceled well before 228 episodes. Your gentlemen's thoughts? I would say it's lasted that long because we've not been on. <laughs> a humble man. I appreciate that. You certainly haven't hurt the, the listening ship out there, viewership, listening ship, whatever you want to call it. Well, uh, please tell me, I mean, where does this rank in terms of your experiences at ETSU? Because I'd like to think having you on the podcast is right up there at the top. It's a lot of fun. Um, I, I know what we're here to talk about, though. I, I, we, may, we may put it just outside of, of Saturday night. I don't know, Matt. How do you think? Well, uh, I would agree with that. Last night, uh, or Saturday night, was fun, but this, uh, I'm ready to get after it again in here today, Mike. The uh, one or two second silence between the question and the answer was, I think, everything I needed to hear there. <laughs> 9,720 at William B. Green Jr. Saturday night for Heroes Day, 20th anniversary of 9-11. A team coming off a Power 5 win. There were tons of reasons to be there on Saturday, and fans really seemed to recognize that, gentlemen. That is what we're here to talk about the record-setting crowd, 9,720. I believe the fifth time since the stadium has opened that you've cracked the 9,000 barrier. Take us through the week. Scott, I'll start with you from each of your perspectives leading into Saturday as you tried to pull off this kind of atmosphere and how you worked with each other as a team to make sure that this effort was going to be successful. Well, I'm just going to start by, by thanking Matt because I mean this has really been an effort many, many months, a year in the making, to have Heroes Day obviously coincide with the 20th anniversary of, of 9-11. Uh, a lot of discussion about, yes, the energy and, and atmosphere and passion that goes into a football game, but how do you execute that with a somber first-class remembrance and honoring of of the heroes and the fallen and the 20 years since our nation was attacked? And, and I, I thought it was just an extraordinary night. So thankful so many people, as you said, 9720, a great number um, to enjoy that and see the Bucks get a victory. But but the build-up, the lead-up, again, Matt did an incredible job with all of our external staff to pull it off. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a total team effort. I think when you look around, uh, and when I say team, I mean big team, right? Campus, students, our staff, um, people that we hire on game day, our team holding up their end of the deal, the coaches – you know, putting together another great game plan. Um, basically, everybody that, that puts this thing together, from live music in the parking lots to, you know, fireworks every time we score, um, it was a pretty special evening. When did you know that this kind of crowd was going to be attending? Was there a point in the week where you got that moment of levity and sat back and saw that there was a path 
to a record crowd there, or was it a big walk-up where you didn't really have any idea and there was, you know, 1,000, 1,500 that just came up to the gates and all of a sudden you're like, oh, wow, this is the day. This is the moment. Well, there's a lot of moments. I would say the first one, in all seriousness, uh, Mike DeRozier, one of the newest members of our external staff, is doing a phenomenal job in our ticket sales department. And I think one day last week he literally came out of the office with smoke coming out of his ears because the phone was ringing off the wall and we were printing student tickets and fielding all kinds of requests about Heroes Day. I mean, it was, it was awesome to see the volume that was moved over the last few weeks, but certainly last week. And how about the students? You know, I mean, you, just, you talk about that. It's, it's always great to sell tickets, but our students with their student fee, the way they support everything we do in athletics for them to show up, and what I think was probably well over 3,000 students, you think a third of that crowd, if not more, were the loudest people with the biggest energy in the whole building. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, Mike, you remember when I picked you up to, to take you over to the stadium as you were getting ready for the broadcast, you know, I kind of gave you that update on where we were at 5 o'clock, and that was about – you know, 8,700 roughly, and we talked about, you know, on the way over about what we thought this night could look like. And, you know, I said, hey, it, it could be 93, it could be 95, um, but they just kept on coming. I mean, that hillside was – it was beautiful. Um, I mean, we've looked at pictures and aerials, and, you know, to see that many people in there cheering on the bucks, I mean, it was just an incredible atmosphere. What are the estimates on the hill? Because I look from press box calling the game on ESPN+. Plus with Mark Hutzel, and I look over, and it was hard to find a lot of green grass that was visible. It looked to me like it was pretty much all humanity there packed in, and, you know, we talk about that Green Stadium holds, quote-unquote, you know, about 8,000, so to get up to 9,700, it means that hill was packed. I estimated about 1,000, but I think I might have been short. Yeah, I think there were probably a few more than that. Um, you know, our students were, you know, hanging over the edge, standing on that sidewalk down there. People brought their blankets. I mean, they were treating that hill the way it was meant to be treated, and uh, and it was and it was awesome. Um, I think that was, you know, everything we could have hoped it would be, and you know, looking forward to doing it again. Scott, can we talk about the students in particular because you brought them up and mentioned them so much early on, a couple of weeks into the 2021-22 academic and athletic season. That's really been the thing that stood out to me, not just football. Obviously, that was great. But soccer, a couple of matches, you know, early on, we've had some really great crowds at Summers-Taylor Stadium, and that's been driven by, you know, Buck Wild and the, you know, student ticketing program. And really them showing up, and I've been here four years, more than I've ever seen early on in a year. So for students that may be listening to this that were there, what do you have to say to them? Because it seems like they have been, as you said, driving a lot of this early season engagement. Well, the first thing is thank you. You know, thank you for bringing that energy and being so engaged and really appreciate the way our external staff led by Matt has communicated with them, the promotions that we've had. They, they bought in, and it, it seems obvious that they're having a good time and they continue to come back, and obviously they carry the energy no matter what we're playing. You know, whatever venue it is, whatever the opponent is, the student, and that's the formula all over the country. The students bring the energy and drive the home field, home court, home whatever advantage. So I would say thank you, and we'll see you again Saturday. So what time did everything start? Let's go back to Saturday. How did it go, and how did it start? When did it start? Hosting almost 10,000 people for an event isn't exactly what I think people would classify as easy. I'm not sure there's a lot of people that understand that the task is such a monumental one when everything centers around one of your events. Were there bumps in the road? Were there chaos You know, at certain points of the day? Were there catastrophes at certain points of the day? Or did things go pretty smooth overall? You know, I think, Mike, I think it actually started right after we beat Vanderbilt the week before. 
Uh, we had planned ahead for that victory. We knew we were going to, you know, play a close game with those guys and, you know, wanted to be prepared so that if we won, we could maximize the opportunity. So I think we crushed it on social media. We had emails queued up and ready to go, you know, to all of our constituents. So people were buying tickets for the following week almost immediately. You know, fast forward through the week, people are buying tickets. We're getting ready. We're building content. We're getting prepared. Uh, I told Scott at one point, I think this is probably as prepared as we've ever been for a home opener. And I felt really good about where we were. Um, you know, we try to make sure that we're prepared and, and kind of break the system, I guess, if you will, to, you know, create problems and solve those leading into it. And, you know, I think uh, it's kind of like a wedding. You know, that's what I always tell people. And, you know, the goal is for if things don't go right or they're not perfect uh, for the bride and the groom to be the only ones who know. And I guess we're all kind of the brides and the grooms here for. I was going to ask who plays those roles. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Um, I don't know if any of us uh, play them play them well. But uh, Randy and the quarterback, know. Randy and Dr. Noel. I just don't know where that That's kind of it. falls in. I'm not, I don't know. Maybe yeah. we won't go there. Okay, good you call. Know, right here, right now. But um, but bottom line, we wanted to to be prepared. And you know, of course, you know, I think you you always have a couple of issues and hurdles that you overcome. But you know, when I pulled onto campus, you know. 8 o'clock on Saturday morning, there were already people with their tailgates and, and tents up. I mean, that whole row on Jack Vest by the Buckwalk was ready to go, and it was like all those people had coordinated their look, and their, they all had the same tent, and there was blue and gold everywhere. I mean, it was, it was a beautiful sight because, I mean, we still had you know, almost 12 hours before we kicked it off. So, you know, obviously it continued to build over the course of the day, and uh, Hayden Kaufman put on one heck of a concert out there in that parking lot. I mean, people were having fun, and the tailgate scene was fantastic. And, I mean, really everything you could have hoped for, kids bouncing around on inflatables and, you know, families playing wiffle ball out there at the Food City Zone. I mean, it was it was special. Um, you know, we had long lines coming in, and, uh, and our ticket staff was able to, you know, overcome some hurdles. We've got a brand-new group there, and, you know, like anybody, it's game one, right? So – you know, anticipating those issues, but being able to get everybody in and get everybody a ticket and and uh, maximize that game day experience for everybody. That's the goal. How about you, Scott? So when you have a game day here, you're the athletic director, right? You have to be a little bit of everywhere, do a little bit of everything. And when problems reach a maximum level, that's when you would be brought in, right? There's a lot of different fail-safes to stop things from getting to up here because you have to be a little bit of everything that day. Did stuff get to you, or were you able to go around, shake hands, smile, go Bucks? how about them Bucks, and, and do your thing that day? Well, I appreciate you saying that. I, I, I love getting in the trenches with everybody. I know Matt and I were offloading popsicles on Friday, which was a lot of fun. You know, everybody in Food City took care of us with blue and gold popsicles, or excuse me, red, white, and blue popsicles. I apologize. But uh, Saturday was great. I mean, it ran very, very smoothly because of the preparation Matt talked about. If there was any type of emergency, I didn't know about it. You know, you always have some things, just like in in the athletic execution, game one to game two, things that you're going to get better at, little notes you're going to take of, okay, oh, there was – you know, this light was out or this line was too long or, or, or this was broken, needs to be repaired, whatever, little things. But thankfully, uh, as Matt said, kind of like a wedding. And I'll just say when you win, you're the bride, the groom, the everybody, right? And, and it was it was like that. It was a celebration. And if, uh, if there were things that went wrong, I don't think we had anything major. And I certainly don't think our fans have reported anything, which I'm very, very proud and thankful of. And, and it's a credit to the preparation of our wonderful staff. So big picture here. 
the response to bringing football back, building the stadium, I think largely positive, which was great to see. I wasn't here for it. Both of you were, so you'd have a much better perspective than me. I do think that there were those detractors looking back, talking to people that said, specifically with the stadium, geez, that's a lot of money for something that we lived without and got, got along just fine without for 12 years. But an event like this, where you're able to bring this many people together, uh, it's so much more than football, right? It's not just about a game in a $28, $30 million stadium, whatever it ended up costing, but this is a hub. This Johnson City, Tri-Cities area, ETSU is a hub for it that people can come together, and regardless of their political, religious, any affiliations beyond that, they can put the E on, watch the E, celebrate the atmosphere, and come together as a community. Is that the idea, and is that what you'd say to the people that still look back and say, you know, I just don't know if we needed that stadium? You know, that's a great question, and I really believe the reminder that 9-11 provided 20 years later, what sports does for every community in America is gives you that positive distraction, that great camaraderie, that pageantry, that passion. And I'm just so thankful that's never been better on display than what you saw Saturday night. And it is what we dreamed about. You know, and this year has, has been that way thus far. You know, we talked about hosting high school football games which we were able to do a few weeks ago. We've talked about hosting concerts, which there's preparation and planning. We'll talk about that later on, later on this year. We certainly talked about, you know, packing 10,000 people in there, which we didn't quite get to, but that means we've still got a great goal. And and the only reason we say that, we feel like 10,000 is the number where our concessions, our restrooms can hold that and there not be a diminishing return on the experience. But it's about everything. I mean, the biggest band, the marching bucks are bigger than they've ever been. We've got cheerleaders and dance team members everywhere. There's alumni. There's letter winners coming back. I can't tell you how many times I've seen a former football player that has come back. Todd Wells, Hall of Famer, was back this weekend with his children. First time his children have ever seen where his dad played. And with tears in his eyes, I'm hugging him. He's got him. I've got him. And his sons get to, And I'm telling his children how great their dad were, was. And we appreciated playing in the Dome. But everybody wishes they had Green Stadium. And they got to see it in all its glory on Saturday night. So one more for you, Scott, then on that, because you're a former football player here. You've come full circle, and now you're the athletic director. You've overseen the return um, in many ways, you know, and seen the growth of not only football but the stadium, and now the whole campus experience and the stadium experience. Everything is centrally located here at ETSU. You don't have to go off campus. You can have your tailgate at 8 a.m. You can watch the game at night. It's a full-day thing. And that you have been involved in so many steps of the process has to feel pretty special for you personally. I'm asking you to step outside the athletic director role now and just reminisce on if you would have seen yourself, you know, 20 years ago doing what you're able to do now, what that would have meant to you and what it means to you now. Oh, wow. It it really is a dream come true for me. Um, I told a segment of our student athletes not long ago and one of our recruits that was on campus that when I was 21 years old working for Todd Stansberry upstairs in this very building, I dreamt of becoming him one day and having the blessing to be the athletic director here. But to be able to do that with all the things that you just mentioned and be back in the Southern Conference, playing football, playing at a high level in every single sport that we have. I mean, let's talk about the whole family for just a moment. The expectation is excellence. We talk about it every day. And we roll out there and we expect to win. We respect everybody and we're going to be first class. We're going to, be, we're going to have sportsmanship and professionalism. But the Bucks come to play, you better button up because we're coming to win everything and that's the way it always was supposed to be but I feel like that's the way it is now and it's because of the family that we put together here the the people like you Mike and Matt and everybody that that believes in this place and 
we're recruiting to that. We've got great coaches that believe in that. And make no mistake about it, it takes every fan and every student. What happens Saturday night doesn't just happen. People have to make that commitment. They've got to make that decision. They've got to buy that ticket. They've got to pay for that parking. And they've got to show up and bring the energy because that energy and that passion is what makes Green Stadium not just the best place in the Southern Conference to play football, but I would say we're at the top of the FCS. Back in the Southern Conference with football on campus in your own stadium setting records. It's, it's pretty awesome. All right. I'm opening it up here, and it may be a big can of worms because I know how specifically you can get Scott in these situations. But, Matt, you know, you're hype up. Let's get people in the building as well. 7.30 p.m. Saturday night, Delaware State, the opponent under the lights. The Bucks are undefeated, the last tune up before conference play. Let's hear your pitch. Stadium to set another record. We had 9,720. Need 280 more for 10,000. Can we get there? What can you say to make sure those 280 get in the building with all the others? Yeah, so um – Absolutely. Let's let's do it again, but let's let's do it better than than before. I think you know we've got some big plans. I think we're going to do some fun stuff, Mike. We're working through some things um, that we've never done before. So um, where we showed appreciation, and love to our heroes last week. This week we want to show love to our teachers. So we're going to do a teacher appreciation night. We have never done that before. So all teachers everywhere, free admission. Our way to say thanks. Uh, we know you're out there. You know, working hard to. You know, educate kids and, and better our communities. We want to give you an opportunity to come out and enjoy a night with your family. It's also going to be Youth Day, so kids 12 and under, free admission. Um, an opportunity for families to come out and have a great time together. So, you know, there'll be a lot of similar things. We will have fireworks. We'll have inflatables. We've got some cool giveaways that we're working through right now. Um, it's going to be a heck of a night. Weather looks like it's going to be really good again. Um, so come out. Let's have a great time. And I'm going to go, uh, since he took care of that, thank you for that, because that, my, my dad's an old teacher, and uh, we've got a lot of, lot of wonderful teachers out there. I hope they'll come and enjoy, enjoy that promotion and, and see the Bucks take on Delaware State. I'm going to talk about football for just a minute. Uh, we've got a darn good football team, and we talk about it all the time. If we can stay healthy, humble, and hungry, it's got a chance to be a very special season. I know Coach Sanders is preaching that to those guys every day, and they're very confident right now, but they're executing a high-level game plan. Uh, very proud of the leadership. I think the spring season has helped them immensely get prepared for this season. And um, it just gets tougher and tougher and tougher as the schedule moves on. But uh, it starts on Saturday. I think Coach says opportunity number three, and there's no chance like the present. There's so Football and all sports are fleeting. You only get so many times to put on a helmet and, and put on shoulder pads. And, and I think uh, there's a, a veteran group on our football team that knows that, and they are sa- savoring not just every opportunity to play football, but every opportunity to play together and to play in our beautiful stadium in front of our great fans. Every season since William B. Green Jr. Stadium has been built and full capacity has been allowed top five in the nation in stadium capacity percentage. And arguably, I think you could say, with the record that was just set, the best night in it just this past Saturday, another big night ahead. Gentlemen, congratulations on the record. You both are obviously tremendously involved leading this effort to get this many people into Green Stadium and getting that record, I'm sure, feels very personal and uh, is a big accomplishment for both of you. And perhaps just as big, congratulations on your debut. And Sandos and the sidekick. Uh, thanks for the time. Hope we don't hurt the ratings, Mike. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Athletic Director Scott Carter, Senior Associate Athletic Director for External Operations, Matt McGahey. Sidekick and the Sandos back with Bull Predictions Recap on the Buccaneer Sports Network. Brought to you by City. You'd be amazed to learn what one Tennessee lottery ticket can lead to. For you, it could be lucky, but for others, it could open the door to so much more. With more than $6 billion raised for education, the Tennessee Lottery has proudly funded over 1.5 million scholarships and grants. 
That means on average, more than 130,000 Tennesseans every year continue their education just because you played. The Tennessee Education Lottery, game-changing, education-benefiting fun. Shohei Otani has taken MLB by storm this season. He's the first player in MLB history to be selected to the All-Star Game as both a pitcher and a position player. The Brooklyn Nets are whole. They are done. If they were committed, if they put in that work, you'd be in the Eastern Conference right now. The Brooklyn Nets are whole watching the playoffs with the rest of us. JaVale McGee has been added to the Team USA roster. Yes, I'll say that again. JaVale McGee. Jamari Monsanto announced he would not be returning to the Buccaneers. A six foot six, 225 pound, three star shooting guard was this year's Southern Conference Freshman of the Year. But Jay is my teammate. He stepped up with the 17 green to our left, the 18th tee, 45 yards away. Jay proceeds to hit from the 18th tee to the 17th green and into the 17th bucket.
So you had Tyler Idell, 250 and three scores. Again, very interesting because Tyler Idell plus Brock Landis, as you said, I believe they combined for 274 and three scores, but you just had Rydell see a fall, 49 yards and a touchdown short. You had four SOCON teams, the ones that were uh, not playing the big dogs, I guess, is basically how I can summarize it. But Stanford and the Citadel were the ones that cost you there. Four winning by double digits. Not only did four not win by double digits, two of them did not win at all. You did, though, at BYU over at Utah. Now all you need to complete your prediction is for BYU to go and join the Pac-12. Yeah, which, which, uh, did I say the Pac-12 or the Big 12? Uh, I can't remember. I have no idea. Yeah, it's in the Big 12, which I believe they got voted in. Uh, it was right after, it was Saturday morning that uh, they are going to extend, um, and I think, I think BYU may have already accepted. I think BYU, Houston, and Central Florida are accepted, and Cincinnati, I'm assuming, was the last to accept. So I could have, I should, should I, get, I should have got a double point. That's the way I, re, I read into that. I know I'm out, but I believe I get a double point. Yeah, yeah, it's a fair point because Big 12 votes to accept adding BYU, Cincinnati, Houston, UCF to conference. So the Big 12 is not going to disband, it would appear. They are doubling down, bringing in everything they can in St. Oklahoma and Texas. We'll see you when we see you, but we're going to do our thing over here. And, hey, I think that brings them to actually 12 teams, doesn't it? Because wasn't there eight left? Uh, yes, yeah, so eight, eight left, left four. in the 12. But, but I also enjoy that the conference commissioner went ahead and proclaimed with the addition of those teams that they're the best basketball conference in America. So if we got to fail down, if we can get that bite, because I don't know what he's, I don't know what in the world he's talking about. Uh, I mean, is he is he bringing back Slam and Dama from Houston back in the '80s? Is he, you know, I mean, Central Florida did I miss when they made a Final Four? I mean, well, did I sleep? Was BYU? I, mean, I don't remember. Jimmer. I don't remember any of that. I mean, well, you remember Jimmer. little tradition. But, yes, you know, again, I understand you're trying to say you saved the league, but I like that he, he went away from basically we're doing this for football, we're doing this to make our league great in basketball is what he went with. So you do get BYU uh, aside from all that, and so you have one bowl prediction correct so far in the year. Uh, my final bowl prediction we shouldn't even really talk about. Every NFL game separated by a score, and that was right over here. 